Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 72. And today I want to uh, do some talking around the parable of the ten virgins. This is found in Matthew 25. So um, I want to thank you for taking the time to to check out um, what I'd like to share today. Um, this has been kind of a process of a couple days where I feel like the Lord has been unpacking this to me. And I think there's some pretty profound things in it. Uh, I think there's some things that are fairly easy to digest and then some other things that are very, I would say, substantial to just chew on, to, to marinate in. So I pray wherever you find yourself um, today or um, whatever place you're in, I pray that the Lord ministers to you exactly what it is that He's wanting to speak uh, through this word. So thanks for stopping in. So um, I'm going to just read the parable first, and and then I'm just going to kind of discuss some things and my my process of thought. I've made I've made notes here that uh, I want to specifically touch on that I felt like have been specific in my own study of this. So we'll just jump right into it. So it's at Matthew chapter 25. It'll be verses one through 13 is where we find this parable of the ten virgins, and it says. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So, as I began to really ponder on this parable and seeking to understand what it is the Lord wanted to show me in it, there are many things that we can discover in it. But I wanted to be very intentional about what is it that you want me to see? What is it that you want me to to discover. I knew something was here for me. But in seeking to understand this part in Matthew 25, I, I ended up backing up just a bit and started in Matthew 24, 45. And it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant 
whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here, what does a faithful and wise servant look like? The text tells us that that servant, the faithful and wise one, gives them, the other servants, their food. Now, food, are we talking about literal food? I believe this to to be communicating, especially in the Greek, it's nourishment, their care at, and it says, the proper time. This proper is the Greek word kairos, or we could say the appointed time. But what was their reward for doing so? It would be stewarding all of the master's possessions. He says, truly, I will uh, put in him in charge of all his possessions. So that gives us a little look at what a faithful and wise servant looks like. They provide at the appointed time the proper nourishment and care of the other servants. And the reward would be to steward all that the master has. Now, this then takes us to our next question. What does a wicked servant look like? Well, first, and I think this is extremely important. First, he thinks he can get away with his actions. Remember it says, but suppose that the servant is wicked and he says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. So here kind of buried underneath this, we can find that this servant, this wicked servant, thinks he can get away with it because his master is delayed. But rather than give them their food at the appointed or proper Kairos time, he beats his fellow servants. And this is, this is the Greek word uh, tupto, and it, it is communicating a, a repetition of blows, if you will, a repeated striking. And it also communicates to us the wounding of the conscience. So there's more embedded in that than simply just he's causing them physical harm. But he's not caring for nourishing. Rather, he is uh, striking. He is repeatedly um, beating and wounding the conscience of his fellow servants. And taking it, uh, continuing on in the text, 
he actually eats and drinks with drunkards. Now, that is significant because now we know Christ in his ministry, he ate with sinners. And this is not saying don't eat with sinners, but rather this servant is eating and drinking with drunkards. It's actually, he's, it's, it's picturing for us that this, this wicked servant is actually giving themselves over to excess. The overarching giving food, I believe, speaks of caring. But neglecting is wicked because of the concern about fulfilling self. So when the master comes, and that is the Greek word heiko, that means arrive, to become present, this wicked servant will get, it says cut him to pieces. That word cut is the Greek word dikotomeo. And that means to bisect, to flog severely, cut in sunder. And he will be cut into pieces and be put with the hypocrites where there will be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So getting a little, what we'd say, context for the beginning of 25, it says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So at that time is not when the master has arrived, but it's in the waiting before the coming. It's important to, to notice that at the time or in or in that in those days the kingdom of heaven will be like. It's in this place of of awaiting. Now Understanding that contextually gives us a little insight into what the parable is speaking of. Now, it tells us that half are foolish and half of these virgins were wise. What separates the wise and the foolish ones? The wise ones brought oil in excess. They brought extra. It's important to see there was oil in both of their lamps, but they didn't have enough. And we see that in verse 8. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. So there was some, there was a fuel source in there, but they didn't have enough. They didn't bring additional. They said, our lamps are going out. So, I really want to dial in some of what's being said. Think about some of what's being said. Pay close attention to, to details to see what we can draw out. So, both of these ten... They had functioning lamps. Also notice that both sets were virgins. 
a lot of times we we see or understand parables through the lens of this end destination mindset of you know heaven or hell salvation or lost but i think there's so much more that's it, that god is attempting to show us if we can see beyond just the lens of one paradigm that we have so notice both sets were virgins but it was really the epitome of what's being distinguished between these wise and foolish it was the extra oil when the oil ran out their lamps were useless notice too that all of them became sleepy not just the foolish they all became sleepy drowsy they fell asleep but when this announcement came right we see that at midnight the cry rang out here's the bridegroom but when the announcement came here he is come out to meet him they all they all trimmed their lamps now what is trimming a lamp this isn't this isn't language that we in our day commonly see many of us have electricity immediate light sources immediate heat sources so a lot of the times we can't appreciate some of some of the the symbolism or parallels that Jesus presented in his day but trimming a lamp i begin to ask you know what, what exactly is that and what does that entail as a wick burns it becomes charred it begins then to burn and produce this greasy smoke and it's called sooting it produces soot now when it gets to this point you actually are producing a lesser light and not only that but smoke contaminates the air so by trimming off this charred portion and through cutting this wick properly it produces a superior light and an overall experience of the lamp or rather through the lamp with the lamp now in exploring this a little more there are actually different techniques to trimming that produce different um, shaped flames it even affects the intensity of the light now you can cut straight across and there's some variability obviously with wick and lamp combinations so that aside we'll just kind of universalize it here for the sake of demonstration but cutting straight across can produce this kind of two peak flame if you cut it into an an arc that's kind of pointing upward it produces a more rounded flame and if you trim the corners of the wick to fashion more of like a point or an upside down v you produce a more pointed flame and oftentimes a pointed wick actually produces a brighter light some would say this is the result of increasing the surface area you know more surface area you have a 
more of a combustible uh, reaction going on and it's creating this brighter light. There's more flame there, if you will. Now, I'm no lamp expert by any means and, and I had to look into this to kind of maybe see some of these little parallels, but but I do believe that the I can see a relation to trimming is this discipline of seeking. It's it's this um, setting our mind to do a thing, uh, to contend for the faith. I, I see it as contending, discipline, seeking, pursuing. So I find that very fascinating, and I'm sure there is quite more to discover inside this kind of art of trimming a lamp. But I do think that communicates some of that which echoes a revelation within it. But I then begin to ask, when you think about it, what is, what is the purpose of the lamps in here in this story? Why, why would a person need one? Would, would each person need their own lamp? It, it appears to me that this isn't just a group activity because each one needs their own functioning lamp. I don't know about you, but in my mind, when, I, when I've considered this parable before and I play out the scenario in, in my head, uh, I kind of picture, you know, the, these, this large group, you know, a smaller group that are wise and another group that's um, foolish and, and it's kind of like this, this group thing. But when you start to think about it, well, all it would take is the somebody in the group to have a lamp that's that's functioning and they could just kind of lead the way because the others can't will say can't see but that's we actually don't find that because each one of these virgins must have a functioning lamp so i believe it would be better to imagine this as a more of an individualistic experience rather than just these groups of people. So one thing that we also find here when we analyze is the, the foolish virgins said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil or we need some of what you have. Our lamps are going out. But the, but the wise virgins said, no, there may not be enough for both us and you. So rather get, go to those who sell and buy it for yourself. So this would tell us that this oil here that Jesus is portraying is not transferable. You, you actually have to acquire it personally, individually. But you may purchase it. And that's, that's fascinating to think about that you that you can you can actually purchase this and I believe that's what he is suggesting to us which I understand then it to mean that it will cost you something if you can purchase it what will it cost another way to say it is 
an exchange is made. We actually see something of this discussed when Jesus is speaking to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. And he says in verse 17, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So he tells this Laodicean people, this, this church, to buy from him gold, white garments, and eye salve. You see, what we have in ourselves is not enough. We need the riches in him. This is the gold. Buy from him gold, the riches in him. The white garments, purity and righteousness of him. And I salve, this is the ability to see as he sees. These, this place in Laodicea is actually known for all three of these things. So Jesus makes this very relatable to the Laodicean church. They're known for banking. They're known for their, their fabric and their garments. They're known for this salve that is, is placed you know, for soothing. Jesus takes what they're known for and he applies it to their spiritual condition. So it's important to then think when Jesus tells him this church, buy from me, what, what would we buy from him with? What would we use to buy? quote, buy those things from him. They are available because Jesus offered them. So the question is present, how do we acquire them? How is that exchange made? Remember, we're, we're still thinking, we're keeping that in mind. We're still thinking also about going by the oil for yourselves. But in this exchange in Revelation 3, how is that made? And I think that verse 19 kind of ex exemplifies how that happens, how that occurs. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be, here it is, earnest and repent. And it continues on, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
So I'll give you what I think to be three answers to that question. How can we make that exchange? How is it that we buy from him? I think number one, genuine repentance. And that's when he says, be earnest and repent. Genuine repentance. I think it's genuine repentance that clears the fog that then postures you to the next part, hear his voice. If anyone hears my voice. So genuine repentance clears the fog that actually postures you to hear his voice. Then hearing his voice positions you to open the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. He will come in and bring those things with him. Because this is important. He is those things. What things? Buy from him gold. Buy from him garments to cover nakedness and eye salve to see. It's actually him. He is those things. When we picture it in our, in our mind, don't picture Jesus coming through the door with these three presents under his arms. He himself is our great reward. He's not bringing packages with him. I think it's of the uttermost importance that we see that. It's actually, because it says, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's fellowship with God that begins the application of those things. The more time that you spend with him, the more time you begin to look like him. The more time you spend with him, the more you begin to look like him. I'd had a thought before Genesis 2, 16 through 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So what's the deal with this don't eat part? Have we considered what that means? Well, I believe that that is echoed here in what we're reading in Revelation 3.20. If anyone hears, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. Eating is covenantal. If you eat, cut covenant with the wrong tree, you will die. But if you open the door to me and eat, cut covenant, I will be in you. There's no coincidence that the opening of Genesis demonstrates this wrong covenant. And in the, in the end of Jesus' instruction here in Revelation to the churches, especially to the Laodicean church, is the key to the fix from Genesis. To the one, it says in verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. That's mind-blowing. Just as I was victorious and sat down 
with my father on his throne. So we look at the promise that results from opening the door and fellowshipping, covenanting together with Christ to the one who conquers. I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's fellowshipping with God that begins the application of those things Jesus spoke to the Laodicean church. And, and I believe too that we can, we can claim and grab hold to in our day. The more time that you spend with him, the more you begin to look like him. Think about this. Time is the most precious commodity that we each have. At the end of our days, at the end of our life, on our deathbed, no one is laying there asking for more money. No one is asking for just one more possession. No, it's in our most vulnerable moments when the last of our days are fading out. It's time that we want. Time is the most precious commodity that we have. How you spend your time shows what is most important in your life and to you. That's sobering to think on. When you develop film from taking pictures, it requires both time and exposure. Time in in this you know, solution and a certain right amount of light. To accurately duplicate that image, that's our goal. We want it to be as close to a mirror image of that object as we can get. The same is true of our pursuit of Christ. We want to become, we want to embody him more accurately every day. That is our desire as followers of Christ. Time and exposure is what expedites that process. Think about pottery. It's actually in the potter's hand is what makes the vessel the vessel. Time and exposure. The same is true of our Christian life. So back to Matthew 25, and we see in verse 10 through 12, but while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. So something I want to really capture in that is while they, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him. I believe it's safe to then say not having enough oil equals not ready. I don't, don't think of this as necessarily from the perspective of from the, from the paradigm of salvation. 
It's not to exclude salvation being communicated in this. I want you to see outside of that paradigm. Not having enough oil is what made these foolish virgins foolish, and it's what equates them to being not ready. We think about these lamps again. The lit lamps allowed the wise virgins to do what? To see him. Ah, that is important. I could say it this way. The light permitted beholding. The light permitted or allowed or enabled them to see him, behold him. The oil permitted the light. That's, that's important to notice. It was the light that allowed them to see him, right? The oil itself didn't do anything in itself, although it permitted, enabled that the combustion, the light to be produced, the byproduct of the oil was the light. And the light was what allowed them to see him. You see, Pentecostals will often see the light, or rather will see the oil as anointing. And, and that's okay, but there, there is more here than anointing. If, if the oil permits the light, which permits beholding him, what is the oil? And I spent all this time to culminate into this question. This is the, this is the thing gnawing at me to understand, to discover. What is the oil? I believe... The oil is desire. Think about it. When desire runs out, it makes it hard to see him. Think in the Old Testament. When a man was anointed with oil, what does it signify? Selection. Remember the widow whose oil was multiplied through Elisha. That was provision. You see, she sold it to pay her debts. It was multiplied to provide. When King David was anointed by Samuel, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. First Samuel sixteen thirteen. When David was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. So here, the oil stood for presence. There's three components there that are important to capture in the oil. Selection, provision, and presence. A couple scriptures that I want us to notice because I think they are crucial as it applies to presence. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. So in that scripture, we, we can um, conclude 
that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon ultimately Christ because he, God, has anointed him. So the Spirit of, of God is there because God has anointed him. Now, there's another verse that dials this in a little deeper and reveals something pretty profound. So tied to that Isaiah 61 is Acts 10, 38. And it says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So here we see more fully that the anointing enable more than just enabling the spirit because that's what it, it it appears to be in Isaiah 61 but more than just enabling the spirit the anointing is the holy spirit you know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the holy spirit the spirit of God is the presence of God so, taking those three components, selection, provision, and presence, in the embodying oil, what does selection, provision, and presence have all interwoven together through all three strands? God's desire. He desired the selected. He desired to provide. And he desired to be present. So, I submit to you, what separated the wise and the foolish virgins is additional desire. I've said this before, and I'll repeat it now. Covenant gets you married, but it's desire that gets you intimate. And it's intimacy that produces generations. So I pray this blesses you. I pray that it revealed the heart of God through his word. And we will see you next time. If it means that God I'm close to you, I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with you.